Good morning. Some of you, good morning again. It's a wonderful blessing to be here. It was a, it was a blessing to get invited to, to speak. Um, it was an even greater blessing to be asked to, um, to do Sunday school this morning. Um, it, what was incredible, I'll, I'll just share a little bit about it. it was, I, I'd actually been praying not long earlier that, um, that somebody would ask me to actually teach about the Bible version issue. And uh, it's something I've been studying for many, many, many years, and I've taught only a little bit of it within our church. And um, and I'd seen the fruit of it. I'd seen people come to finally actually trust the King James Bible in a way that they've never trusted before. And um, and to see it from really God's perspective as far as what He teaches in His Word. And uh, and well, when uh, you know. Pastor Charlie's like, he goes, no, I don't tell a man what to preach. I don't tell him what to preach, but if you'd be so inclined as to teach maybe on the King James Bible, I reckon that'd be really good. I said, hey, that'd be an absolute blessing to do that. So uh, I do pray that uh, you guys got a blessing out of it this morning. And uh, I know that's been recorded, so any of you that have missed it um, can have an opportunity to listen to it. It's just such a big issue and uh, it's... Trying to cram it all into one small space of heart. Let's uh, let's bow our hearts before our Lord and ask Him bless this time. Father, to you, dear Lord, we give thanks. We give thanks, dear Father, for a salvation that you wrought on the cross. Salvation, dear Father, that we are yet to fully even comprehend. And a salvation, dear Lord, that I'm sure there are people here, dear Father, that have yet to accept. Father, to be born again, dear Lord, is such a wonderful joy. To be saved and to be safe, to be in the arms of our God, that no matter what happens, dear Lord, is is such a joy and such a hope. And I pray, dear Father, that you'd be with us this morning as the Word of God is preached, as it's taught. I pray, dear Father, that hearts will be turned, some convicted, dear Lord, and salvation, dear Father, to be magnified. And the angels in heaven will, will shout for joy, dear Lord, over one sinner that repents. I ask of you, Lord, that you would be with me, open my mind and my heart to receive more of the truth of your word and open the minds and the hearts that are here to receive this too. Thank you in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. You were at Habakkuk before. I'll ask you to turn there, please. <clears throat> Habakkuk is one of those really short um, minor prophets. It's known as the minor prophets. Uh, it's not minor because he's little. It's not minor because uh, it doesn't have importance or value. It's minor because generally they're, they're shorter uh, than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of those. So Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we were in. And we're just going to read down to uh, verse 4. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. And make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. This, this entire book was, was, a, was a book of prophecy, but it was one that was between Habakkuk himself and the Lord. It did go out, I'm sure, but it, was, it wasn't it was necessarily something that was directed to 
the Jewish people, if you're aware, but the word of God, though it was written primarily for the Jews, it was also written for the Gentile nations around them. This is one of them. Who Habakkuk's dealing with here is he's dealing with the Babylonian kingdom, which were yet to come into the fore. This was written roughly around about the 600 BC, around about that mark. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been disbanded. They've been taken by the, by the Assyrians and, um, and decimated as a result. Habakkuk is speaking about the Babylonian kingdom here, which are yet to come. But what he's addressing in chapter 2 is the Babylonian kingdom and particularly the king and his pride. If any of you have read um, the book of Daniel, you'll see the Babylonian king there in Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and what actually came of that. So he's there in the, in the pre-exile period. The, the chapters actually flow, uh, flow as a beautiful, simple outline. The first one starts pretty much with the first verse. It speaks about his burden. The second one, the vision that he's talking about. The third chapter is a, is a prayer and a song that, that, that Habakkuk is giving to God. Our sermon today is going to be broken up into five short sections. And the outline is this. I'll give it to you now, just in case you miss it as I go. First is the preparation of the heart in the first verse. The second is the purpose of the word. Third is the promise of reality. The fourth is the proud will not hear it. And the fifth, the penitent will live by their faith. So in the first verse, the first portion, the preparation of the heart, Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Every one of us has experience in life. We all have experiences in one way or another and they're all different from one another. That's not something that's unusual. There's different things within our lives that actually will bring us to the feet of the cross, to our Lord Jesus Christ. With Habakkuk, what we see here is that he has experienced and seen the reality of what God has already said in his word. He'd said multiple times to Israel that you need to turn away, you need to come back to me. He's seen the evidence of that and he was historically witnessed to Israel being taken away into the northern kingdom. So he realised that they had an absolute rejection of the word of God and as a result of that, they ended up being uh, taken into captivity. The problem that we have here, we're in, a, we're in a place right now where Judah is following in exactly the same line. Judah has seen Israel. Judah has seen what's happened to Israel. Now, Israel were the ten tribes, you remember? What we have left in Judah is the, the southern tribes, only two. We have Judah and we have Benjamin that's left there. Everybody else were part of the ten. Judah had seen them taken away. The word of God went out to them. The prophets preached to them. Day and night they rose. And it wasn't just the ones that we've got in the Bible. Many others. Jeremiah speaks of many others that actually came and went and speaking the word of God. But they won't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. Not only did God tell them what would happen, he told them how you can be blessed if you follow me. Israel didn't want to have a bar of it. And they, and, they, and they left and, they, and they, what happened to them was exactly, exactly what the Lord had said in the word of God. And now we've got this same thing happening over here with Judah. And Judah watched them and, and, and didn't learn. In Jeremiah chapter 3, 6 to 10, 
This is, this is the result. And we see this. I want you to draw a link between what you see in the world today. Please don't, don't take this as just something that's happened out there. This is happening now. This is happening today. This is happening within your own lives. You're seeing things happening with people around you and some of you aren't learning from their mistakes. Some of you aren't. It took me a lot of years to learn from their mistakes. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen what which that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when, for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but faintly, says the Lord. But Habakkuk, he prepared his heart to seek after the truth. It wasn't what he knew, it was what God teaches. He desired to stand upon his watch, to set himself upon the tower. His desire was to watch and to see what he will say unto me. Habakkuk seemed to long for the truth of God. He had a great fear of ignoring God's words. His desire was to live by faith in those words. And that should be our desire. We should be designed to live by faith in a truth that's outside of us. I don't know about you, but you don't have the truth, I'm I'm guessing. If I was to ask you about what's true about this or that, in and of yourself, I, I dare say I don't really know the answer. I don't think you would know the answer either if it wasn't for the Word of God. But the problem is... Before we came to Christ and before some of you are coming to Christ, um, you still don't know the truth. It's really funny, you know, I find it intriguing that evolutionists believe that our minds evolved and our brains evolved and everything like that evolved, everything came together by random mutations, a whole bunch of billions and billions of atoms coming together by complete accidents. And they believe that with a mind that's been created by these accidents. I don't know you, but I wouldn't trust it. You know, I certainly wouldn't trust it. If that's true, how can you trust it? How can I trust a brain that's actually come, come, come about by accident? You know? It doesn't make any sense to me, and yet they seem to think that it's true. I don't know with what they think it's true. Now we live in a postmodern age. There is no truth. There's no such thing as truth. We have to ask the question again, is that true? Like, you can't even make that sentence without making a false claim. You know, the sentence itself contradicts itself. It cancels itself out. So, so is the truth in me? Truth in me? Well, no. Uh, is the truth in my heart? You know, everyone who teaches, you know, these days, follow your heart. You need to follow your heart. Trust your heart, and it will lead the way. We've got so many songs: "Follow your heart, girl," and this and that and the other. All following the heart. And the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, the Bible actually teaches us that we need a new heart. Okay, so which is true? Do I have faith in the words of God or do I have faith in... See, somewhere each one of you are going to have a foundation. Somewhere each one of you are going to have a final authority. Somewhere you're going to place it. It's either going to be in you 
Well, it's got to be in the man at the pulpit or the idiot box, which, you know, a lot of people do. They actually come home from work and they take their brains out and they put it on top of the television and they say, tell me everything that I need to know. So many people do that today and they believe every lie that comes through. Satan is the ruler of the air and he has used it. He's used it perfectly. So we have so many people that have been sucked in by it. So now we've got, so we've got no truth in me, no, no truth out there. So maybe the truth is in majority opinion. Maybe the majority of the opinion of individuals, what they say, the majority of them say, that's got to be true. That's another place where you could put truth, isn't it? That it has to be a majority opinion. So it's not in the teacher, okay? Not necessarily in the teacher. It's not in me, so it has to be majority opinion. That work? Well, I mean, I've seen people do that. They've, they've gone through the Bible and they've tried to look at it and say, oh, well, what does this word mean? So they've gone and picked up a lexicon and they've had a look at that. The only problem is if the lexicons were absolutely 100% true and should be relied as a final authority, then you've got to ask the question, which lexicon? Because there's more than one. And then you see how many times that word's been translated this way. So if it's been translated 26 times that way, but only twice that way, then it should be really translated that way. Does that work? Not really, because we've got words in our own language that we can use more than one way, can't we? We've got a lot of words that we can use more than one way. So that doesn't actually make any sense, you know. Um, I, was, I was thinking about that the other day when I was putting this together. And I was noticing a, a few words, a few words that we use that changes their meaning over time. Not over time, but even in a sentence. You know, the word bear can refer to an animal or a rude person. The stock market in decline is a bear market. Uh, to rapidly move towards something is to bear down on it. To be patient with somebody is to bear with them. Uh, we can drive a car and bear to the right. If I had something good, it made bear repeating. Um, during Christmas, our parents made bear gifts to the children. Might need to bear bad news to someone else. Trees bear fruit. Women bears children. A woman bears children. I mean, it's the same word. It's the same spelling of the word, but in context, it's got a different rendering. So, can't be relying too much on. On, on, on majority opinion. That doesn't work either. So we need a final authority. This morning's study was about. That's what Habakkuk's looking for. But in order to do that, he had to prepare his heart. And, and that's where you need to be at. You need to be preparing your heart to trust the Word of God and to believe in it. And the second point was the purpose of the Word. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Uh, the word of God was, we said it was written to two groups of people that they may know it, that they may understand it. Uh, but the word of God had to be clear. You can't be given an instruction about something or teaching something unless it's clear. You can't, you can't be obscure about it. We can't have a road sign that says danger and then a hundred different road signs next to it with jumbled up letters that sort of say the same thing but something a little bit different. How are you going to know which way to go? How are you going to know which way to turn? If there's a sign there that says cliff ahead, will you miss it? And we've got Christians everywhere driving off a cliff because they're not trusting in anything other than their own selves. But here he makes it plain upon tables, the Bible says. Write the vision. Now, the vision refers to the Word of God. It always has. Right through Scripture, the vision refers to the Word of God. So we've got many today that actually believe that whatever I imagine is the vision. 
So do you have a vision for this church? Yes, I have a vision. I have a vision. God gave me a vision for this church. Well, the Bible, when it refers to the vision and the visions of God, all refer to the truth of God himself. It refers to the word of God, the very word of God. That's the vision. So when the scripture speaks about vision, it's only speaking about the word of God. My people perish from lack of vision. Right? Without a vision, the people perish, the Bible says. Well, that vision is with, with respect to Scripture. In Samuel, it speaks about, you know, when Samuel was there and, and, and there with, with Eli, he says uh, the Word of God was precious in those days. There was no open vision. The Word of God was precious. What does that mean? It means it was rare. It was rare. And as we heard this morning, the book of Amos, it actually says, Behold, all, send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the Word of the Lord. You know, the word of God is going to be so rare, it's not going to be found at all. Where is our, where is our final authority? You know, we commit to memory along uh, a, a lot of you know, scripture verses. Here, the Bible says that the purpose of the word here is that he may run that readeth it. And, and we'll quote easily... Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. I mean, we, all, we all know John chapter 3, verse 16. So know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You know? And sometimes we'll read the second part of that, which is, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through, uh, through, through the world, that the world might be, uh, through him might be saved. I'm let me suck that up, because I was looking at my notes, but I've been trying to remember it. But you know, I don't hear, I don't hear the next two verses. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Was that plain? Is that, is that plain? There's not a distinction between it? In 1 John 5, 12, he says, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 19 one-syllable words that tells you the way to have life and the way to not have life. You either have the Son or you don't have the Son. One-syllable words. They should be simple for us to be able to take hold on. And yet we've got people everywhere, people sitting in churches that are they're not receiving the Word of God. Hearts are hardened. Why? Mark 16, 16, he says, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Proverbs 8.36 says, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth in his own soul, and all they that hate me love death. Make a plain upon tables that he may run the greed of it. But we got we got and, and, I'm, and I'm addressing you guys as Christians and as, as people in church because um, I know that there's people in churches that aren't saved. George Barman did, a, um, did a, a report many years ago, I think it was about 15 years ago, and it said 80% of the people that are in churches admitted they're not born again. They're not saved. All right, we're, we're, we're independent fundamental Baptists, aren't we? We, we preach the gospel, don't we? We're always preaching the gospel. We have Bible studies. We have Sunday school. We have all that sort of stuff. All right, so flip it. Flip it. The independent Baptist circles, 20% of the people aren't saved. 
I don't know what we've got here, 20, 30 people. Say there's 30 people here. That means there's six individuals sitting in these chairs that if they die today, they're going to find themselves in hell. You know, six people. There's six. I don't know who, I don't know who they are. I don't know who you are. But there's six. Good chance there's six. And is it not plain that he may run that readeth him? Is it not plain that we are to run? We read the scriptures and we understand where we're at. The Bible actually tells us really clearly. He says to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. Prove your own selves in 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Habakkuk, Habakkuk prepared his heart to receive the word of God. The word of God was then received by Habakkuk and, and instructed him to make it plain upon tables for the specific purpose that he might run that readeth it. That if he reads this, if he reads this, he will run. He will flee from the wrath to come, the Bible speaks about. So that's where we're at so far. Now in, in Matthew chapter 7, have a look at verse 17. We'll just read from 17 to 20. He says clearly, this is what should distinguish those that have the Spirit of God in me from those that are not. And he makes it really plain. He says, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, whereby by their fruits you shall know them. People are afraid of confronting Christians that don't picture Christ with actually asking them, are you saved, brother? Are you saved, sister? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? No, I can't judge their heart. True, I can't judge their heart. But the Bible makes it really clear here that by their fruits, ye shall know them. We shall know them by their fruits. If the Spirit of God that's dwelling within me is turning off the spirit that's in the other, other individual, chances are they're not of the Lord. If I know that I'm of God, if I know that I have the spirit of God within me. So we believe that if you are saved, if you are born again by the blood of Christ, you are preserved unto eternity. Don't we? We believe that he is the one that's, we are his purchased possession. He's the one that bought us and he's the one that will keep us. As we preserve his word, he preserves us. He doesn't preserve his word. Little chance he's going to be preserving any of, any of us. So he brings us into salvation. We have assurance of our salvation. Friend, if you don't demonstrate the fruit of God within your life, if you can't demonstrate that you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit within you, you have no assurance that you're saved. You have no assurance that you're saved. And as hard as that is, I, I honestly thought, I'll be personal here, I honestly thought that when I came out of the charismatic movement, when I came out of the charismatic churches, that I came into fundamental Baptist churches, that I was thinking, mate, almost everyone born again. 
You know, they hear the word of God, they hear the truth of the gospel, and mate, they're miraculously converted, and almost everybody that's in these churches will be saved, you know? And you know what I've discovered? It's, it's, it's almost a little different. I don't see fruit. These young teenagers walking around, and, and, and oh, they come from a godly family, and they attend every church service, and they read their Bible sometimes, especially if they know their parents are watching. And, 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 and they do all this stuff, and you know what? There's no fruit, no fruit, nothing. Nothing within their lives that indicate that they're born again. Nothing within their lives that indicate at all that they aren't facing an eternity in hell if something should happen to them right now. And it breaks my heart. And then, and then I've seen the same teenager, seeing all of a sudden accept Christ for who he is. And though before he could quote the Bible, all 66 books, backwards, forwards, upside down, inside out, all that sort of stuff, now I see a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ and that cries when someone gives their life to the Lord and rejoices like the angels in heaven rejoice. You know, I see that. You see the change. You can't have a confrontation with the God of this universe and not be changed. You can't. It's impossible. They hear the word. It's playing upon tables. That he may run the reader for it. You know what? They're sitting down. Not even walking. Comfortable. Relaxed. I'm okay. Everything's good. You're still in Matthew chapter 7. You're at verse 20 at this point. Have a look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus goes on and he says this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Please, can't you, can't you see it? Doesn't, doesn't God write plainly? That he may run that readeth it. Run! 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 If you are not saved, run! You need to know the Saviour. If you choose that rather than having life, you will have death, that's insane! That's insane! The idea of knowing where you are is to run. Run to the Saviour. Write it plain upon tables. Make it simple so everybody can understand. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You know, it's um, it's not your good looks that's going to get you into heaven. It's not how smart you are that's going to get you into heaven. It's not, um, it's not anything about you. The Bible says that God is no respect of persons. Just because you come from a godly family doesn't mean he's going to tarry. Doesn't mean he's going to tarry and wait. Third point. The promise of reality. The promise of reality. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it, shall, it will surely come. It will not tarry. 
Everything the Bible spoke of came to pass. Did you know that? Everything the Bible has spoken of came to pass. We have the destruction of the Assyrian Empire has been determined by God and it actually happened. Okay? The Assyrian Empire actually took Israel captive. Israel, the ten tribes, took them captive. Okay? And decimated them. Decimated them to the point that they are no longer identified as persons. Did you know that? We think about them historically as the lost ten tribes of Israel. Never returned back to the Lord. We don't know where they're at. We know that during the time of Revelation, during the time of the tribulation period, we know that somehow God will find 12,000 from each of those ten tribes. We know that that's true because the Bible says it. But for this point in time, there, aren't, there isn't a Jew that belongs to one of those tribes that can identify their line. But we still have some Levites can generally identify their line. If their name's Cohen, then chances are you come from a Levitical background. There are people in the line of David that can still identify their line as part of the tribe of Judah. But everything that God said came to pass. He spoke about the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. Well, that, that happened. That actually happened in 539 BC. Um, the Assyrian Empire, I did say that again. The Assyrian Empire destroyed 539 BC. Interesting, it wasn't destroyed, it was sort of all of a sudden made obsolete. No, sorry. Babylon, I'm trying to get this light, the, the, the history right. right. So they were destroyed, that's right, they were destroyed by the Babylonians. They were destroyed by the Babylonians. Nineveh fell. Now, remember Nineveh? Nineveh was the same city that Jonah preached to and they repented of their sin. Yeah. Remember, he walked through there and he didn't want to be there. Oh, there's a lot of preachers that don't want to be there. And he just walked through and it was like, 40 days, 40 days, come to destruction. 40 days, it's all over. That's all he did, did for three days. The entire city repented. But all it was was a reprieve. Because in the end, Babylon overtook them. Babylon overtook them completely in 612 BC. 612 BC, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the Assyrians. But the Babylonians didn't last because then they were promised in Scripture that God will punish them for their iniquity. Right? God will punish them for their own iniquity and they were taken without a battle by Cyrus, King Cyrus the Persian in 539 BC. You remember that? The portion is in the book of Daniel. You've got the writing on the wall. They're all having a party at 3 o'clock in the morning with the, all the vases and all the, all the stuff from the temple. And, and the Bible basically says you've been, you've been uh, weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is up. Your time is up. You know? We get that from scripture, from Daniel. Cyrus came in without a battle, historically without a battle. No one died during that time. He overtook the Babylonian Empire, except for the king, Belshazzar. He, he died. It's got an interesting passage in there where his loins were loosed. I'll let you imagine what that actually referred to. But he was really frightened, really, really frightened. And he was taken over. Everything there true is true about what the Bible says will happen. So if the Bible speaks about heaven and it speaks about hell and it speaks about our sin, my question that I want to ask you is, are you safe? Are you safe? I want to ask if you're saved. If you're saved, you're safe. Are you safe? If, if you were to die, guys, the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. Every one of you are going to die. Save for those small amount of people that will be caught up at a time yet future. Every one of us here will die. We have an appointment with death. You can't get out of life alive. You can't. 
you will die. What we don't have an answer to is when. You could die in a car accident. You could die riding your skateboard. I don't know if you've ever realised this, but in reality, you know some of the most horrific accidents happen over the most simple things? You know, so, I mean, how, many, how many people have put their back out just getting a box of cornflakes out of the pantry? You know, all of a sudden your back's out and you're down for 10 days. You know, you didn't do anything, you know. I've seen people, uh, Michael's probably a good witness to that, you know, rides his bike and puts on the brakes and all of a sudden, big tumble, you know what I mean? Something really, really small, you know, and all of a sudden, massive problem, you know. Michael again on the little slippery thing there and smashed into someone's knee and split his brow open and there was really big damage there, but not that big a deal, you know. You've got some of these people that are actually doing 360 hoops in the air on their motorcycles and they land them. All right, some don't make it. You know, it's pretty tragic. But the problem is that you could be doing something very, very, very simple. You know, something could fall off a truck and all of a sudden you have to steer your car out of the way and you end up in a tree. You know, it doesn't take much. And we've seen stories of that. We've seen people that have died. That's reality, my friends. That's reality. Reality is you will die. But the question is, do you know... If you're safe, because the Bible also speaks about eternity in hell. That's reality. It speaks about it as fire and brimstone, and it's forever. There's no limit on that time. Jonathan Edwards put it, he says, if all the sands on the beaches of the earth were in an hourglass container, not an hour obviously, but were in a container, and as they dribbled through, and every sand granule was representative of a day, Though all that sand would take millions and millions and millions of years to come through, you would still have hope if you were in hell and you knew that the last grain you would be out. You would still have hope. But there is no hope in hell. And Dante wrote, he wrote that there was a sign over the top of hell that says, Abandon all hope ye that enter here. There is no hope. This isn't a small deal. Guys, when we preach this, this isn't small. Right? This is serious. And that's what the Word of God teaches. So as preachers, we say week after week, Behold, as the Lord I send prophets unto you, and you will not hear. Judah was being the same. We will not hear. But the Bible says, It is yet for an appointed time, and shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Turn your Bibles to, uh, to uh, Revelation chapter 13 for a moment. <laughs> Everything that the Bible speaks about that we know has come to pass. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. It's speaking about the period during the tribulation that's going to be passing through on this earth for seven years. And it says this, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had 
the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. Earlier, it speaks about it as them that worshipped him. What we have is in the beginning of the chapter, he says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads was wounded. And down to verse 4 it says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? In Revelation chapter 13, portion that we read first, we see that they were all given a mark. We're all seeing that what you see there that they can't buy or sell save that they have a mark. What sort of unity is that? Nobody can buy or sell unless they had a mark. It's an economic unity, isn't it? In order to have an economic unity, you have to have a global hand. You have to have a single leader, because this is around, all the way around the world. Rich or poor, small or great, okay, bond or free, this is everybody in the world have to have this mark. We have economic unity here. In order to have that, you need global unity. And we just spoke about religious unity. These three elements, these three elements is what's required. Now listen, remember I said that everything the Bible teaches will come to pass? Do you think it's just going to happen like that? All of a sudden, everyone's got a mark of the beast? You know how it's going to happen? It's going to happen gradually. And do you know what? If your eyes are open, you can see it. You can see it occurring. I just want to address one part of that. Let's talk about global unity, just for a second. You don't think that this is actually happening because we live in a bubble a lot of the time. I want you to listen to some of these. H.G. Wells, in 1939, he was an atheist and he, he died, obviously. He actually killed himself. He was, a, he was not a happy atheist because um, he understood the implications of it. H.G. Wells actually said something really interesting. He says, if God does not exist, nothing matters. If God exists, nothing else matters. Interesting, isn't it? Coming from an atheist. He wrote a book in 1939 called The New World Order. And this is what he quotes. I'll quote from his book. Countless people will hate the New World Order and will die protesting against it. This is H.G. Wells. In 1950, James Warburg, who is the son of the famous Paul Warburg, who was part of the construction of what we see today as the Federal Reserve Banking System in 1913. So he's his son, nephew, son, one of those two. It's related to him. And that family created the Federal Reserve Banking System. The Federal... Oh, we're going to another whole history. Federal Reserve Banking System is part of what's now the global economic order. Okay? But this is what he said in 1950. He said, we shall have world government whether we like it or not. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or consent. Walter Cronkite, if, you ever, if uh, some of you... Us older ones remember Walter Cronkite, he's the famous newsman. He said this, he says, It seems to many of us that if we are to avoid the eventual catastrophic world conflict, we must strengthen the United Nations as a first step toward a world government patterned after our own government. 
1991, David Rockefeller, during a Bilderberg meeting in Baden, Germany, said this. Listen to this. We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine and their great publications, whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promise of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. You're getting a little bit uncomfortable? Another quote, 2009. In a speech at the Smith School World Forum on Enterprise and Environment, Al Gore said this. It is the awareness itself that will drive the change and one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. He's speaking about the environmental impacts and the environmental efforts. If you remember the Copenhagen meetings that, that happened a couple of years ago, 2010 I think it was, one of the stipulations within those agreements that everybody had to sign, part of the treaty, was to accept the formation of a global government. It fizzled out because it became public. And a lot of people protested against it. <laughs> that's just a couple of years ago. Okay, that's just a couple of years ago. Nine years earlier, Jacques Chirac, the president of the uh, of, of France, linked the environmental movement and to provide a willful impotence to global government. In no November 2000, he says this: For the first time, humanity is instituting a genuine instrument of global governance. From the very earliest age, we should make environment awareness a major theme of education and a major theme of political debate until respect for the environment comes to, to be as fundamental as safeguarding our rights and freedoms. By acting together, by building this unprecedented instrument, the first component of an authentic global governance, we are working for dialogue and peace. Jacques Chirac. Another one, Henry Kissinger actually said that Obama was primed to create a new world, world order. Who spoke about it? Richard Nixon called for a new world order in 1972. Mikhail Gorbachev spoke about a new world order in 1987. George H. Bush, and it's on video, you can get it on YouTube, uh, spoke about it in 1991, claiming that the United Nations is to be the impetus and claiming Winston Churchill spoke about it. Robert Kennedy spoke about a new world order. UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown spoke about a new world order. Nelson Mandela spoke about a new world order. Kevin Rudd spoke about a new world order in 2008 that it needs to be formed. Finally, the link to Revelation 13 was given by Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller was, he's now dead, Robert Mueller was the former Assistant Attorney General of the United Nations. In his 1982 book, A New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality, he said this, We must move as quickly as possible to a one-world government, one-world religion, under a one-world leader. What you have to understand is that Robert Mueller is the author of the World Core Curriculum for Education. He's the, he's the, the, the author of that. That World Core Curriculum is being instituted through nations, through national curriculums. What are we going through in Australia at the moment? Have you heard about the National Core Curriculum? Okay. A lot of those things that were instituted by the United Nations are going to be taught to your children and to your children's children, until this comes to pass. Everything the Bible teaches is real. Everything that it teaches is true. The promise is absolute. 
The proud will not hear it. Point four. Just about done. It says, before, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The proud don't think they have a problem. But the Bible says the proud will be abased. Daniel chapter 4, 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Why did Nebuchadnezzar say that? He was abased. Remember? He was abased. Oh, isn't this great, this kingdom, Babylon, that I have built? And no sooner were the words in his mouth that the Lord said to him, your kingdom is now taken from you. And what happened to him? He went insane. He started feeding with the beasts. He was driven from men, the Bible says, until seven times came over him. Seven years he was there, ploughing the field like an ox. Hair was growing on his back. The dew of heaven was falling onto him. He was taken out because God abased him. He was the head of gold, the Bible speaks about in the, in the vision. The proud think they have time. The proud think they have time. But the Bible says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. The proud think that they can come to Christ any time they like. But the Bible says that we need to come to God while he may be found. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. The proud think that somehow God will show favour to them and wait. But the Bible says there is no respect of persons with God in Romans chapter 2 verse 11. And the fifth point, the proud believe that they can come to God on their terms. But the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let me ask you, do you think salvation is easy to gain? Do you think it's easy? Do you tremble like Felix in the book of Acts and say, oh, when I have a convenient season, I'll send for you? Salvation, salvation will cost you everything. Salvation costs you your heart. You have to be willing to give up the deceitful heart that you have and be given a new heart. Salvation is not easy. And for what I've seen, whether it's in charismatic churches or fundamental churches, what I've seen is that salvation isn't really that easy. It's just not a matter of just saying some words. You have to be willing to give your heart away. Once you make that decision, once you prepare your heart as Habakkuk did, once you realise that the foundation is in the Word of God as Habakkuk did, once you understand that you are to run, if you read it, that God speaks plainly, once you see clearly that reality is real, it is an appointed time, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Once you understand that, your heart is the last thing that needs to go. You need to be willing to give it up and to have life. To have life. The Bible says, But if the wicked will turn from his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live. He shall not die. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. 
To live by faith in his words will cost you the heart that is deceitful above all things. The last, the penitent will live by their faith. Penitent will live by their faith. The text here says the just shall live by faith. In summary, the just shall live by faith is quoted three other times in Scripture. It's quoted in the book of Romans. It's quoted in the book of Galatians. It's quoted in Hebrews. Three times. And what's incredible about it is that what each of those books represent. The just shall live by faith. The just, the book of Romans, tells you who the just are. It deals with the just. How shall they live? They shall live. How shall they live? Galatians tells you how they should live. It describes the fruit of the Spirit. It describes the nature of those that are born again. By faith. The book of Hebrews deals with faith. The entire chapter, chapter 11, speaks about those that were in faith in God in the Old Testament. You've got a trilogy of truth expounding the text that we have here in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. It's incredible. That's why I love this book. That's why I love this book. It's just incredible how everything comes together. The Bible is the final authority. It makes it very clear where your state is at. You can either sleep through the services, you could sleep through your life, you can be choose to be blind and turn away because, you know, I want to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but the penitent will live by faith. Live by faith. And I want to ask you, please, live. Don't choose death. Please. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for your words. Thank you, dear Father. The Bible speaks plainly, dear Father, that we may run when we read it. We may know it, but we may believe it. Lord, all I ask, dear Father, is that if there are those that are here that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, even those that believe that they do, Father, that they would examine themselves, whether they be in the faith. And Father, then, dear Lord, having examined themselves, understanding where they're at, dear Lord, that they may run. That they may run to our Lord and Saviour and they may flee from the wrath to come. That they may have the life that you promised, the life that you said, that you, you came to bring life, that they may have it to the full, that they may see meaning in their lives. Pray, dear Lord, for this church. I ask you, dear Lord, that you would help it grow, help it bloom and blossom and let the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ go out in this area. Let us share the word of God with those that are around us. Let us know and remember, dear Father, that there is a reality that's going to happen on this world. And I believe, dear Lord, it's coming soon. I just pray, dear Father, help us set our priorities in order to know, dear Lord, and remember, dear Father, you are coming soon. There are many people that we love, dear Lord. I pray for their hearts. I pray, dear Lord, that the gospel will penetrate. I thank you again for this service. I pray that you bless our time together in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.